this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think that you shouldn't underestimate the patient with fecal incontinence for sacred neuromodulation. When I started my practice here and in Tampa, I would say the number one indication that I was doing it for was fecal incontinence, simply because I query my patients for fecal incontinence. It's part of my talk track at this point. So, you know, everybody gets asked if they have fecal incontinence and not only does it work very well, but they are very grateful patients. And th those are some of the happiest patients that I have in my clinic. Because if you go from having fecal incontinence to no fecal incontinence, that's a real game changer in your quality of life, right? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Jose Ocha Silva, your host this week, and we have Danny Hoffman. Danny is a female urologist in the Orlando area. Uh, we went to re residency together down in Puerto Rico. After that, Danny went to do his fellowship of, in female urology with Dr. Victor Nitti at, in New York. And then afterward, he went into academics. So, Danny, welcome to Backtable. Thank you for having me, Ote. It's a real pleasure. So, so Danny went to academics. Uh, he was a couple of years there, and then now he's, he's, he's in our group in, in uh, Advent Health, Central Florida area. So, Danny, let's talk about first about uh, why academics. What, why, after you went into, after being in, in the fellowship with Dr. Needy, you went into academics? Uh, what was it? Uh, place? I mean, t yeah, you went to Tampa. Tell us about that process. So, you know, when, when, when you go into that sort of fellowship or that, that sort of academic fellowship, there's certainly a pressure, not maybe pressure is not the right word or expectation is not the right word, but there's certainly an inclination to go into academic medicine. And, uh, you know, when, uh, when you're interviewing for jobs, Dr. Nitty's always telling you, well, I've got this guy at the University of Miami that wants to talk. I've got this guy at Mass General that wants to talk. I've got this, uh, you know, most of the job interviews that land your way when you're, you're graduating from fellowship tend to be in academic institutions. And, uh, I, I just had the, the fortunate situation where I, I, I had an opportunity at the University of South Florida in Tampa, and, uh, I have some family in Tampa. So, uh, it, it kind of was a, a, a good fit for me. And, uh, that's what took me to Tampa. I mean, uh, you, you know, me, it's, 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 it, my career has basically been a story of being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been very fortunate so far. And, uh, I think it was just one of those, those things that it, it, it sort of, uh, fell in my lap, if you will. And, uh, and uh, I had a, you know, it was a great experience at the University of South Florida. Dr. Dr. Rafael Carrion is the, the chairman there now. He's very well known uh, in sexual medicine and, uh, you know, my experience was overwhelmingly positive there. Definitely. I mean, Tampa, great weather, great beaches, great food. Great city. Yeah, absolutely. Great uh, staff there at, at USF. So definitely you couldn't go wrong with that. But academics was not for you, I guess. You wanted something more. Well, it was it was a, a matter of, of priorities for me, right? When I went into academic medicine or made the decision to, to go into academic medicine, I had a, one child and a wife that worked full time. Now I have uh, three kids and a stay-at-home mom, so my priorities have shifted a little bit. So, you know, while the, the, the quality of life is certainly good in academic medicine, it was a decision that, that I had to make personally for myself and my family, right? Definitely. And, and right now, I mean, you're, you're doing great here. So, so, so that, no, no question about that part. 
No, it's been it's been a great experience. So so let's talk about I mean in in terms of the practice per se. How was your practice in Tampa compared to what you're doing now? So you know in Tampa in in the academic setting you really do have the benefit of being able to to pick and choose what you want to see, right? So there my practice setup was basically 70% voiding dysfunction neurourology female urology. I, I don't just see women. I do voiding dysfunction in men as well. So, you know, guys with BPH incontinence, things like that. We did a lot of sphincter work with my fellowship. So it, anything that had to do with neurourology or, or MS, Parkinson's stroke, I would say it would be, it was like 70% voiding dysfunction, female urology, 30% general urology, like stones. You can't get around that. Right. And I love doing stones. I don't think I would ever stop doing stones. And, uh, you know, just general lumps and bumps that you get along the way. I think it's, it's shifted a little bit. Do they tell you, Hey, you need to do a little bit of your, your, your or it was just part of what you wanted? No, it was part of what I wanted, right? Okay, so for okay. me to keep my, my fellowship certification, my practice actually has to be 50% female urology, right? Okay. So I would say at this point, it's like, it's, it's shifted a little bit. It's like 60, 40 female urology to general urology. Um, but it, you know, just happy to be busy and, and, and doing the good work that I do. But I think that certainly now that I'm almost a year here in central Florida, I've definitely seen the shift in terms of seeing more complex voiding dysfunction. I'm seeing more consults for neurogenic bladder, complex incontinence patients, refractory, you know, failed slings, failed first, second line therapies for, for OAB. So uh, I'm very happy with that. Yeah, and definitely within our group, uh, we have a lot of guys that do oncology, so so not not enough that do uh, what you do, and 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 you came in at the right time, and mm -hmm. everybody's sending patients your way. And and yeah. you know, yeah, you, you, I'm very fortunate in my practice setup where both my my partners are oncologists, and I have zero interest in doing oncology. They have zero <laughs> interest in doing voiding dysfunction. So we play very well together, and we refer each other patients, and it it just works very well for us. So yeah, and, and definitely, even though I do some void instruction, definitely the complex cases I'm, I'm sending your way. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for thinking of me. Yeah. So, so Danny, so, so let's talk about, about what you do. I mean, voiding dysfunction and, uh, but specifically, uh, I want to talk about Botox and versus, uh, neurostimulators, uh, for that over, overactive bladder or, or, or for some frequency urgency, things like that. Are you doing Botox? Are you doing both here right now? Uh compared to what we're doing in, in, in fellowship? When I was at NYU, Dr. Nitty did the, it was, you know, he had just done the registration trials for Botox. So we did quite a bit of Botox in my, in my training. And it was mostly because we were a referral center for, for neurogenic patients. We were seeing a lot of the, that patient population. And, uh, that is really the patient population that I think of when I think of bladder Botox. If, if you're a neurogenic to choose your overactivity or you have, uh, to choose her overactivity with impaired contractility. That's the patient that I'm thinking bladder Botox for. So, you know, I had an overwhelming experience of, of, of Botox. We did it both in the operating room and in the office, mostly in the office. Uh, when I went to Tampa, kind of shifted a little bit. They didn't like doing office-based procedures there so much. So I was doing most of my Botox in the operating room. And now I think I've, I've shifted again. I, I, I like to do the women in the office, the guys in the OR, just for comfort. Yeah, that definitely. And, and, and I think that's the beauty of Botox. I mean, it's, it's about doing it in the office and, and that's yeah. the, the, the upside to it. Very low risk procedure. Uh, what's your ideal patient for Botox? My ideal patient for Botox is the patient that's in urinary retention, because that's the, the, the patient that you don't really have to worry about side effects, right? Because 
when you're selling patients on Botox, you're having that discussion on Botox, you lose most of them when you start talking about urinary retention. Exactly. And that, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a discussion that you have to have right with your patients. So I think that, uh, patients select themselves for therapy and they tend to deselect themselves for Botox. Once you start talking about retention of urine. Are you doing a uh, hundred or 200 or, or what's your thought process when you decide what to use? So for, for the, the neurogenic population, I started 200 units. So if you're coming in with MS, a stroke, you have Parkinson's, you're, you're, you're getting 200 units, the, the choose your activity. I'll start at a hundred units, um, go up to two. If a hundred fails, I'll usually wait three months between injections have gone up to 300 units on some patients off label use, but, uh, can work. Uh, I've done it, especially in the neurogenic patients, patients can develop antibodies to Botox and, uh, the Botox stops becoming as effective and that's a tough patient population. And, and these are patients that either have a supra pubic catheter, they self catheterize chronic catheter, they leak around Correct. it. That, that, that's, that, that's what you're talking about of those neurogenic patients that are having the Correct. bladder spasms. They do really okay. well. You, you, if you have a patient that's wet and you could put them in retention and they'll be dry, they'll be grateful. Yeah. And I do have to, some patients of those. I, I, I started doing a hundred cause I, that's what I, I knew uh, when, when I first started, but then definitely after talking to you, I started doing the two hundreds patient much better. I mean, they're, 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 they're dry. There's like you say, they're, they're dry and, and they're, they're pretty happy with it. What type of templates are you, are you using? Uh, and is there a difference between, uh, between templates? So, you know, what, what, when we trained with it, there was like, we, we did the umbrella thing. Right. And, uh, I think we, we moved, we, when in my fellowship, we moved towards a grid template and that's what I was very used to doing. Um, just half CC injections, depending on how much Botox you're using. And I just go, you know, from UO to UO up and down the, the posterior bladder wall up to the dome and back. And then I always save uh, a CC for the trigone. And I believe in injecting the trigone. You know, if you believe that whole theory of, of the, the bladder contraction, I mean, it, it, it should involve the trigone as well. So we always injected the trigone. That last trigone shot can be a little challenging, but if you, you get it at the right angle, you'll get it in there. And you will use that for both, for both uh, patients on retention or erective bladder or just? I do, yeah. And it, 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 it's just my, my mechanism. Now, there's been new studies that come out suggesting that you can do just like four or five injections of Botox in the bladder, just larger injections. And they've, they've been successful as well. So, you know, I question, does the template really matter? I think the, the issue is just getting the medication in there. What we were doing initially when we were doing the wheel, I think we weren't getting the medicine in the, in the detrusor per se. So I think moving away from that wheel and just getting the, the needle in the muscle was really what changed. And to your point, I have done a few patients that when you go for cystitis, I mean, they, they have a erective bladder with, when you go in, half of the bladder is red and, and, oh, and yeah. you know, th those areas are very vascular. So you don't want to go, uh, you, they start bleeding. So, so yeah. I have done five, six injections, putting all the, 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 the hundred units and they, they, they do good. They do good. I mean, maybe it doesn't last six months. But, but they're two, three months good. And I, I, you know, that's, if, if you get three, three to six months efficacy on a Botox injection, I think you're doing well. Are you doing for, for these patients with Botox, are you scheduling, scheduling every six, six months or you're waiting for them to start having symptoms? How do you start doing it? The first couple of injections are sort of a trial run until you figure out what that schedule is and they will let you know. I, I have a lot of patients that are on a routine at this point, right? We know that every three to six, every four to six months, we're going to do an injection. Some patients, it's once a year, you know, some patients can go nine to 12 months with, with a Botox injection. 
now that we have telehealth virtual visits, it, it, it makes it very easy. They just hop on, hey doc, it's time for my Botox injection. I put the orders in for the procedure. They come in to get it done. Are you doing it with a flexible or do you have a rigid at the office? So for the, for the women, for the women, yeah, it's preferable to use a rigid scope. If you have it, it makes it very easy. We're using a flexible scope and it's almost like a, a two person job, but when you're using a flexible scope. Yeah. The, the ones that, yeah, I have the flexible, I have, we have the same stuff. I think it's, do we have the, the congenetics, yeah. uh, which is pretty nice for diagnostic. It's great for diagnostic. It's tough for procedures. Uh, and definitely it is, I mean, I, I it is a, a two man job. And definitely yeah. the, the, the MA has to, Hey, inject, inject, go ahead, go mm -hmm. ahead. So, so, so there's a learning curve in the, in that part. There is, there is. And that's what, that's why, you know, like the guys, I take them to the operating room because it's just so much easier to rigid scope them and be able to do it yourself. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but doing a cystoscopy in the office, every time it's more challenging. I, I, I think people, I mean, at least guys are, are, are not as comfortable. Uh, I started doing some Valium for, for patients that, that when you, when I say, Hey, we're going to, what, what a cystoscopy is, I see, I looked at their face. Uh, so I started doing a five milligram Valium, uh, to see if that helps. I haven't seen that much difference. The one's going to say that's going <laughs> to scream, it's going to scream. I do add event two milligrams for a lot of my procedures. You know, if the patient is very anxious and it, it, I, I find it helps to some degree. You know, always, you know, in the office, you're in a rush, you put that lidocaine jelly in, are you really waiting five or 10 minutes for it to take effect, right? The tough patient's going to be a tough patient, right? No matter what you do, but I, there are things that you can do to, to minimize the misery in the office, right? And I think that those things are important. So you're using two milligrams? I'll do two milligrams of Ativan one hour before okay. the procedure, right? For example, okay. uh, I try to not use it for things like PNEs because I, I like them to be able to give me the feedback then and there, but for a scope or something like that, a bladder biopsy, something like that. No issues. Okay. And are you doing, for example, a, a, page, a male patient that has some of activity that also has BPH? How, how do you treat that? I mean, do you treat the BPH first and see what it happens? Are you doing Botox at the same time that you're doing BPH treatment? Uh, I had a patient that I did Urolift and Botox and he went to retention. So he had, we was catheterizing and then, and then Two months after it was doing good. So it takes a couple of weeks for them to get out of that retention. Right. And it, yeah. if, if they can get by with catheterizations, this, you know, if they're doing CIC, they do very well. I tend to think of it as, you know, uh, it's the chicken or the egg phenomenon, what happened first. And that, you know, in my mind, it's, it's, it's the bladder outlet obstruction causes the detrusor hypertrophy and the, the, the overactivity. Right. And, uh, I always focus on treating the outlet first. And then we go from there. It's, it's easy to medically manage, right? So uh, I don't have any issues. Uh, you know, I don't like to do shotgun therapy, so I'm not going to start a guy on Tamsulosin and Mirabegron at the same time, but I'll, I'll stagger it by two weeks and we'll see how we're doing. And if he's not better at that point, then, you know, I typically will scope him, get a urodynamic test. If they if they got mixed symptoms, right? Figure out, is the obstruction really a problem? Is the bladder still squeezing, right? And then typically go after the outlet if the overactive symptoms don't settle down after you go after the outlet, then I'll go after the, the OAB pathway. And those are the patients that I try to avoid things like doing green lights on. I find that if you have a so, retention, yeah. <laughs> but irritative voiding symptoms, those patients don't do well postoperatively with green lights. It really makes the irritative symptoms bad. They're miserable for three months and, and, and really, uh, I mean, maybe my metric words works, uh, I'm trying the Gemtesa. 
But definitely, I mean, I, I do a lot, of, a lot of green lights and patients that do have overactivity, after I do the green light, I mean, they're, 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 the flow is good, but they're, they're, they're going to the hour, every hour, every hour on the hour. And they're miserable. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I, but eventually they, they do good, but those first Eventually, months, but I tell them at, at the bare minimum, six weeks of, yeah. you know, if they're insistent on getting a green light or they're on an anticoagulant and we have to do a green light. I tell them it's going to be a bare minimum of six weeks of burning with urination and you're not going to be happy with your urinary symptoms before things get better. So, you know, it's all about setting expectations too. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know, maybe resume works better for those patients. I don't know. I'm going to try to start doing other stuff there. So Danny, so let's talk about the male patient again and the overactivity. When you do the, the Botox first, let's say you look into do the cystoscopy, you do the urodynamics, heal. Not much that obstruction. You do the Botox, and now he has slow stream, but he's emptying completely. Do you wait until uh, the Botox is gone to assess? I mean, because you you then you don't know that if it's the obstructive part now or 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 what is the Botox? How do you deal with that patient? So when I do Botox first, I try to wait three months before I make a judgment call on a secondary procedure. Okay, because that that really allows the Botox time to declare itself. I mean, in, in theory, Botox takes seven days to reach maximum efficacy, but if you're having mixed symptoms like retention, it can take up to three months to really wean off. So if, if I'm going to flip therapies, like go from Botox to sacral neuromodulation, I'll, I'll wait three months before I go down that pathway. Okay. But with the, the BPH guys, right, um, it, it's tough if they're, in, if they're not emptying their bladder, right? So I, I, I always try to push CIC as much as I can, but if they're catheter dependent and they're miserable and they really want the outlet reduction, well, you go after it. I don't know in your, in your clinic, but I'm seeing more patients that have over, irritative symptoms, overactivity versus the classic, hey, I, I can't pee. I don't know if it's that, if that's what you're seeing also, but. I, I mean, I see, I see a lot of overactive bladder just because yeah. of the nature of my practice. So I, I would agree with that sentiment. I see a yeah. lot of guys with irritative voiding symptoms uh, that are not obstructed. A lot of them have bad diabetes or, or, or exactly. other comorbidities that lead to overactive bladder, like there are multiple diuretics or things like that. And, uh, you know, you have to manage those symptoms because they need to manage their comorbidities. And, and it takes time to convince them that it's not the prostate. I mean, I, I, yes, I think that's, I, I that's the that. strong, the, the difficult part is convince them that it's not the prostate. But that's where I go to diagnostic testing, right? If, if these guys aren't getting better on alpha blockers, I don't hesitate to pull the trigger on doing a urodynamic testoscope because the, it really, you know, it's in the guidelines, it's in the algorithm and it's, it, it's indicated and it gives you the information that you need to move forward to therapy. And I, I really push it on my guys that are 65 or older, you know, the incidence of the choose your underactivity can be very high. So you don't know if these guys are, 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 are having impaired contractility versus overactivity or obstruction. So. It could be it could be very telling, Danny. So so let, let's talk about neurostimulators. So so for the the activity or voiding function, those are I mean Botox and neurostimulator are, are are the tools that that one use. Are you using Medtronics, Axonics? You use both? Any difference? I use both. So you know we we could go down the rabbit hole of constant current, direct <laughs> current. I, you know that's that's not a conversation that I think is 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 within our scope. I think that as long as the energy is being delivered it, and you put the lead in the right place. The therapies are, are relatively equivalent. I, I've uh, found that, you know, not everyone is a candidate for a rechargeable device, right? And uh, Axonic still has the only primary cell on the market. You, you found that the hard way? 
Yeah, I, I did. I did. So it's it's true though. You know, you have to you have to think about that because you don't want to put the burden of recharging on the caretaker. And if 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 that does become a burden, they're not going to recharge it. They're not going to get their therapy, and that patient go with a battery operated device. Yeah, because definitely. I mean, one thing the control is much easier on the Axonics uh, for someone that 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 might not be so savvy with the Metronics one. But then that person might not be able to 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 recharge it as well. So so it's Correct. I mean yeah so it's a, it's a catch twenty two in that sense. So who's your ideal candidate for a neurostimulator versus Botox, for example? Well, again, you know I like the patients in retention for neurostimulation. I think the patients in non-obstructive retention do really well. But for me, again, it's all about what the patient wants. And once you start talking about neurostimulation and and how it works, most patients tend to select that pathway. I think that, you know, when you talk about a, a staged approach where you can actually take the therapy out on a test drive and get a sense of whether it works for you or not before you have to make a commitment to that therapy, I think a lot of people buy into that. And I, at least in my practice, I do a lot of, of percutaneous nerve evaluations. So, you know, it, you come in, it's a 15 to 20 minute procedure. You wear the device for three to five days, and then you can make a decision as to whether that's right for you or not. And if it's not right for you, then we can talk about Botox or tibial nerve modulation. But I think, you know, tibial nerve modulation, sacral neuromodulation, right, are flip sides of the same coin. So for a patient that has a Foley catheter and, and you, I mean, are you doing P&E or are you doing a stage one for those patients? If they're catheter dependent, yeah. you know, we, we have to get them out of that state. So I learned that one the hard way too. You, yeah. you either need to put a suprapubic tube in them or you need to teach them CIC. If they're in retention, I'll go in, I'll put a, and they refuse to learn catheterization, I'll put a suprapubic tube in, and then I'll do a staged approach okay. for that patient in particular. Because when they're in chronic retention like that, it, it takes them a little longer for the bladder to get going. It's not going to be that, that three to five day P&E that's going to jumpstart their bladder. So for that patient, a staged approach is often a little better. But for your frequency, urgency, and you know, I don't know if you see it in your practice, but my, my overactive bladder patients, you know, even more so they're coming younger and younger. And, um, those patients do really well with neuromodulation because it's, uh, they understand that it's a device. It's something they can control. It's something they can recharge and it puts them in the driver's seat of their symptoms. And in, in terms of, uh, let's talk about some complications of, of the, of the devices. I mean, some patients complain of chronic pain, chronic pain down the leg. Do you try to replace it? What do you do with those patients? You know, if they're having pain down the leg, First thing I do is reprogram. I try to get the, the arc of the energy as far away from S4 as possible. So you try to bring it up closer to S3 and, uh, you know, usually if you're getting referred to pain down the leg, it's because you're getting closer to, to four. The patient that doesn't do well with a reprogramming, then I would consider a lead revision. And I'm not hesitant to do a lead revision on a patient. I think that the patient that has pain at the stimulator site can be a little bit more challenging. Sometimes you have to do battery revisions or, you know, generator revisions, get it a little deeper. If it's too superficial, I like to, I like to really stick to the two centimeters. So I take the, the long end of an army Navy, it's actually three centimeters. So I, I, I tend to check my pocket depth a lot with that. And it's, it's a good little trick to make sure that you're like in the right plane and just using that long end of the army Navy gives you like that right depth of penetration. That's for both? For, for both, right? The, 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 the micro or the rechargeable device. You use the same depth. They're both supposed to be approximately two centimeters from the okay. skin side so they can connect, communicate to the, to the connector device. Okay. So I, I use the same depth. But for the, the 
the rechargeable device, I like that technique where you take the army Navy and you just make your pocket with the back end of the army Navy and you slip the battery underneath that. Exactly. So that, that's, that's what I'm doing for, for, for the Axonics one. Have you, be, have you used the, the recharger of the, of Medtronics, of the interesting? I have, I have, I have, I have. And I've, I've had some patients come in with, uh, dead primary cells and, uh, they want to upgrade to, uh, a rechargeable device, uh, or an MRI compatible device. And they want to stick with Medtronic and we absolutely go down that pathway. You don't need to change the lead, right? I mean, as long as this, the lead was MRI compatible. That's the, the catch, right? So the, the, the primary cells were the things that were not MRI compatible. The lead was MRI compatible, but the lead is not interchangeable. So if you're going to go from primary cell to rechargeability, you've got to do a full swap. If you're just going to put in a MRI compliant primary cell, you can keep the same lead. So I think it was like a three, three weeks ago before all this COVID stuff that we cannot do surgery started. Yeah, it's tough. I did a patient that she had, she, she has an IC and over at uh, University of Michigan, they, they put two devices, two, two, two interstims. Yep, but somebody that. else had already placed one. So she had three leads and, and two devices. So <laughs> I was able to remove the, the batteries with the leads, but the other lead, uh, the, the, the original one that was like 15 years ago, it broke. So the, yeah, the stuff. So it stayed down there. I mean, I, I sent her to a neurosurgeon. What's, what was the next step with that? So, I mean, the package insert says, leave it alone, right? There, the, you, if you have a fractured lead, you don't go after it. You know, that, that being said, uh, you know, when I was in my fellowship, we, we, we did do some aggressive uh, manipulations to try to extract leads in patients that needed to get MRIs. And, uh, you know, we have done, you, you can't do it in conjunction with neurosurgery if you just completely lose the lead inside the foramen, because at that point you're really digging in a space that's not familiar to most urologists. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I dig down, but well, the, on the C arm, the, 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 the lead that fracture was anterior to the, to the sacrum. So I say, Hey, there's no, there's no way I'm getting there. So yeah, that's tough. Yeah. That's so, tough so space. I sent her to cause, cause definitely that person, uh, she needs an MRI for other reasons. Uh, so, so she's going to have to get that lead removed, I guess that, that, that tip yep. of the lead. And that more than likely, and I mean, I, I think the spine guys are much more comfortable in that space than we are, and it's, it's definitely not wrong to get them involved. Yeah, Danny, and, and you, you mentioned, uh, the PNEs. So, so you're doing, uh, PNEs and then if it works, going straight to the full implant. Correct. And I do, I, you know, a lot of people have the, the, the facility of fluoro in the office. I, I don't, and I'm, I'm doing blind peonies in the office and I do really well with them. My conversion rates in the mid nineties. So I, I think that if, if you're doing good technique and you just spend a minute or two to get the, the needle in the right place, you'll have good results. Yeah. I think, I think that there's, there's some uh, group that, or there's a, I don't know who, who brings the, the CR to the, to the to the office, but one of the guys from the group are, are doing that also. We have that option. I think there's a third party vendor that will bring fluoroscopy into your office. Does it make a difference in terms of the billing for us in the RVU model? Does it, does it matter? For us in the RVU model, it does not matter. So for the office urologist, perhaps he can build the, the fluoroscopy with interpretation of images up to one hour, but uh, at the cost of getting that CRM in the office, right? What I can tell you is that in my fellowship, we had a CRM in the office. We, we used it a lot, right? Not just for PNEs, but for video urodynamics and we did rugs and cystograms and every, you know, catheter that needed to be pulled 
was studied before, but when we were doing our PEs, we always marked the patient as if we were doing a blind PE. And nine out of 10 times, we would go with our markings when we were using the, 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 the C arm. So I, I found in my practice that doing blind PEs works very well. And definitely, I mean, you, you, you can bill for that and then bill for the, for the, for the full implant. So, so the revenue is better. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I like to stack them. So I'll do, I'll do two PEs on a Wednesday afternoon. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll block my schedule after like two 30 or three o'clock and it's just an easy afternoon for me and, uh, and a, a relatively profitable afternoon. So, so you do them on Friday and Wednesdays and then, uh, you will see them again on Monday or just have the patient call to the office and go straight to the OR? How do you do that? So they'll, 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 they'll come in on, uh, on Monday or Tuesday for the lead pull. And, uh, it, you know, if I'm in the office, I'll see them. Sometimes I'm in the operating room and my nurse will just take out the lead. And, uh, if they, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll set up a virtual to go over the diaries if we need to, and we'll book the procedure. And those, uh, You're always in, in conjunction with the rep. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, if, if, with, with neuromodulation, you, you have to work with your rep. You know, I, I, I don't fight with my reps. Uh, you know, I listen to my reps. Yeah. They're, they're there to help you. And I think they make a huge difference, right? Uh, a good rep can make or break a case. And uh, I think a lot of the hard work with neuromodulation gets done after the fact, right? The implants, you know, what, what we have to take care of. But uh, reprogramming, uh, troubleshooting, that's where the, the, the finesse comes in with this procedure. Exactly. And, uh, if you have to do, uh, a stage one and then a stage two, how long do you wait a week, two weeks? So you can, you know, you can go up to 14 days. Let's say I do a PME that doesn't do well, but still wants to move forward with the stage approach. I'll tell them we can do a seven to 14 day trial and we'll do a stage approach. And, um, I always plan for seven days, but we touch base halfway through the trial and if they're not doing well, we'll extend. So it, it, it you know, typically these procedures are, once you're doing the stage approach, the stage two is really a 15 to 20 minute operation. So it's not really too off-putting if you've got to stack an extra case next week to give the guy or gal an extra couple of days with the trial. And for a patient with obstructive retention, I mean, so for non-obstructive retention, uh, does it changes? Or would you place the, the full implant and then let, let it wait, wait a couple of months and see how it goes? So if I have any improvement in the non-obstructive urinary retention patient, I'll push them towards an implant. And uh, I, I find that those patients start to do really well at about 30 days. So it takes the nerve, I think, a little longer to learn the, uh, the, the message, right, in these retention patients. Um, you know, probably just the mechanism of injury is different. If they see, you know, for example, I tell them a success would be going from being in retention to avoiding spontaneously throughout the day and then needing a catheterization before you go to bed. So that for me is a very successful trial. Definitely. And, uh, that, that, that's, you know, the type of patient that I'm really pushing for an implant. And you will go straight into the implant, right? Well, if, if we're staging it, no, it's PEs with the retention patients I've, I've done them and they do well, we go for an implant. If they don't do well, we'll stage it. You will still stage it. Okay. If they don't do well with the PE. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I staged those, but I, again, I, at the end, like you said, it's 30 days. So I still, you do the, the full implant anyways, without them being, getting better. And eventually they will get better. It's true though. It, it, you see it at about a month. Yeah. Some of that, you, 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 st you get lucky and they start voiding five days with the stage one, but, but yeah. So, so Danny, so in terms of the, 
let's say if if you do you try to change the entire implant let's say a, a patient wants to the, the batteries like a, an all intersteam the batteries get, is getting dead mm -hmm. and they they have great results do you just change the battery or or do you ask them hey do you need an mri or will just try to push them to change everything I firmly believe in shared decision-making. So yeah. I, I put it up to the patient, you know, what do you want, right? Do you want the new MRI compatible device? Are you happy with your current therapy? And do you just want your battery swapped out? So I, I, I never push therapy. I think that that's a recipe for disaster, right? So whatever the patient wants. Okay. If now what's my, my threshold, I typically tell patients if let's say you're going in for a revision or a, a, some sort of issue. If anything's older than 18 months, we might as well just do a full swap out. You know, once you start to hit that two-year mark, might as well just take everything out and swap it out. Exactly. If they're having other issues. Okay. If they're having other issues. Okay, Danny, anything else, any takeaway or, 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 or anything you want to mention in terms of Botox or neurostimulator therapy? I think that you shouldn't underestimate the patient with fecal incontinence for sacred neuromodulation. When I started my practice, here and in Tampa, I would say the number one indication that I was doing it for was fecal incontinence, simply because I query my patients for fecal incontinence. It's part of my talk track at this point. So, you know, everybody gets asked if they have fecal incontinence and not only does it work very well, but they are very grateful patients. And the, those are some of the happiest patients that I have in my clinic. Cause if you go from having fecal incontinence to no fecal incontinence, that's a real game changer in your quality of life, right? Definitely. And I have patients that, that for urine doesn't work. I mean, they, they still have overactivity, uh, but they, they don't have the fecal incontinence and they're happy. They're and, happy. And, and, they're and happy. I think the first time that they happened, I, I didn't even ask if they're having diarrhea, I mean, or, or incontinence and say, well, it's not working enough, but, but I'm happy because I'm not having any fecal incontinence. Well, I didn't know you had it. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so so after that first patient, I definitely talk about that also. So Danny, I I, I wanted also, I mean, something new that that, that we both of us are are doing the 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 bulking agent. I wanted to talk about this, and definitely, I mean, do you do any cooptide before or or any bulking agent before the bulkamid? A little experience with Durasphere and Macroplastique, but mostly cooptide. Um, we did most of our cooptide in the office with the wolf scope using the sidekick needle and uh, you know at nyu all we did was lidocaine jelly and in you go with your scope and and you got your injection i mean the whole procedure may take two to three minutes right it, it's a relatively quick procedure i didn't love the results with the bulking agents you know my my, my big issue with the coaptite was the minute you withdraw the needle you start to see the coaptite coming out of the injections and uh, you know i just questioned the longevity of the the agent and that's why most of those patients you counsel them that they're going to need a, a touch-up a repeat injection to get them dry if they're ever catheterized their continence is going to go away right i think that that's changed a little bit with the new bulking agent the bulkamid i've been having some very good results with that bulking agent I think what was most impressive for me is that when, when you inject that gel and you withdraw the needle, there's nothing coming out. That gel is staying in place. We're in the same situation right now where, unfortunately, because of COVID, uh, our hospitals are in black status, so we're not able to do any elective surgeries. So I've been counseling a lot of my women to try bulking agents, and I've, I've done quite a few injections in the office, and they've all done really well. It's a, a quick procedure. It's minimal downtime. Uh, you know, I tell them you have to take it easy the day of the injection and the next day, normal routine. If you're, 
if you're doing CrossFit, go back to doing CrossFit and tell me if you leak urine. You know, I had uh, one patient that couldn't void postoperatively. I've done a handful so far. And uh, we just did a quick in and out catheterization center home and uh, she was fine. You use a 12 French or? So I use the uh, 12 French, just a, 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 I like the, the Coloplast Compact just because it's a very small catheter and just in and out, boom. And, and you're using uh, intravesical anesthesia you, or you're using Eurojet? I will do a Eurojet and then we'll take some of that Eurojet, smear it on the, on the labia so that it, it gets some periurethral analgesia topically. And then I'll do a periurethral block, just three to five cc's at uh, five and seven o'clock. And uh, some people could have been putting bicarbonate into the uh, lidocaine. It, it does help somewhat with the irritation when you give the injection. I will also give that patient Ativan two milligrams prior to the procedure. And uh, we're using the Bulkamid, the mini scope, which I think also it kind of revolutionized the way that you administer the bulking agent, right? So the technique has changed a lot. It's no longer that injection where you're skiving in and trying to inject the agent laterally. You're more creating a cushion circumferentially around the urethra. So also good results. And Danny, I forgot to ask you for Botox. Are you, what do you use for anesthesia? Just, just Eurojet, just a Eurojet. So you're not using intravesical anesthesia in like 30 cc, 30 mLs or, or, or some, uh, lidocaine watch. No, just the Eurojet. not typically just the Eurojet. But, I, you know, again, I find that women tolerate things much better than men do in the office. Definitely. Right? definitely. Guy, I, wouldn't, I, would, I wouldn't do that too in the office. So, Danny, so Volcamid, uh, do you think, are you going to do more Volcamid rather than slings? I mean, or do you think you're going to replace the patients to, instead of using slings? Or are you going to actually have, of patients that didn't want to sling, you're going to do this more? I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an easy conversation starter. It's a, 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 a quick office based procedure and downtime is maybe one day where you're back to normal activity the next day versus doing a sling where you have to tell the patient, you know, it's going to be three weeks of no heavy physical activity. You've got to let that thing score into place. If not, it's not going to work as well. And given our current situation with, with, with our limitations of operating in the, in, in, in the OR, it's gravitated my counseling towards that. And I've found that patients are doing really well with it. I can tell you anecdotally, some, some of the guys that have been doing this a little longer than I have been doing a whole bunch of it. And, uh, it's a, a, a much easier talking track to the patient, right? Towards an injection versus a procedure in the OR. And definitely, I mean. Virtually zero side effects. Uh, uh, like you mentioned, if you cannot urinate, you can remodel the blob that, that you created and, and th that's it. So it's very, very interesting. Uh, definitely, I think I got a game changer or something easier in the office that you can do for a long time. It, it supposedly lasts 70 years. We'll see if, if that's true. But yeah, for now, it, it sounds pretty good. And it's allowing us to keep treating patients, which is what the most important part. Exactly. So Danny, I think it's it's time to wrap it up. Thanks for being part of the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no. I will definitely continue to talk, and I, I will we'll talk about more avoiding dysfunction in, in men because it, it is a, a big topic, and and we can also be there talking about a full show. So so thanks again for for being here. Take care. Good night, man. Thanks, and you guys have a good night as well. Yeah.